Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Where does Lyndon Johnson place in the pantheon of American presidents? It's a tricky one. He passed civil rights legislation that bent the arc of American history. But his prints are also all over the calamity of Vietnam, a legacy that leaves him outside the top ten when historians debate these things. One thing they all agree on, thanks to the work of his biographer Robert Caro, is that LBJ's mastery of Congress was unmatched before or since. Johnson weaponized the art of the schmooze. He had a striking way of ingratiating himself with the powerful. He identified older men with no sons of their own and filled the vacancy himself. It worked on Sam Rayburn, the House Speaker, and on Richard Russell, the leader of the Senate's Southern Bloc. Both were bachelors. Johnson had them over on Sundays, but made sure neither man knew he was nurturing the other in the same way. Russell came for brunch, Rayburn at dinner. Getting big stuff done in Congress requires an unusual combination of cynicism and idealism. Can anyone in the current crop match Johnson's mastery? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how will the new Congress work? It's a crucial moment for the 117th Congress. New president needs to pass a bumper stimulus plan. The old one faces trial in the Senate. The stakes are huge for both parties, as leaders struggle to control high-profile members on the fringes. What's changed in the 10 years since the Democrats last ran both chambers of Congress? How much will get done, and who might make it happen? In this episode, we'll set out the agenda for the new Congress, talk to a former aide of the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and hear how shifts in the flow of political money are changing the balance of power. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? We had a big snowstorm this week in New York, so it had the typical look of being absolutely beautiful for about three hours before descending into a dirty, slushy hell. But it's, it's it was still pretty fun. We got about two feet of snow here, which meant several days of staying inside around the fire. Really no different than what we've been doing for the past nine months, except for the presence of a fire. What happened to homeschooling during the snowstorm and after the snowstorm? Because one of my favorite things about living in D.C. was whenever there were a few centimeters of snow, all the schools would close and the kids would be at home and everyone would spend their time throwing snowballs at each other. How, how does that happen in the era of homeschool? They closed schools for a day for my kids. They gave them a snow day, which is sort of a vestigial thing at this point because they're always remote. But they did have one day to go out and play in the snow. 
Well, some of that slush was still around on Monday in Washington, D.C., when a group of 10 senators trudged through it on their way to the White House to have a meeting with Joe Biden to talk about his first legislative priority, which is a COVID stimulus plan. Idris Kaloun's been writing about it for this week's Economist. President Joe Biden laid out a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, as he calls it, which comes after Congress has already allocated $4 trillion in spending on COVID-19 relief. The main components of, of Biden's plan are a big vaccination drive, but it also includes lots of other Democratic priorities. It includes another round of $1,400 checks uh, going out to every American. It also includes a minimum wage increase to $15 an hour and a big $350 billion bailout of state and local governments uh, on the theory that their finances have been adversely affected over the last year. It's an enormous, enormous bill. Yes, as you say, the numbers are really big. And just to give some top context, while you're throwing around hundreds of billions and the odd trillion here, the stimulus that Barack Obama was able to get when he came into office in 2009 was about a trillion dollars in current money. So we're talking almost double that, even though the economy is in far better shape now than it was at that point in the aftermath and well during the financial crisis, really. I, I think the size is actually the most striking thing because it is Biden knows that he's not going to get the entirety of a $1.9 trillion plan. But what it tells you is that his political strategy is to go extremely big, and then in the inevitable negotiations, whittle it down to something that is still fairly large. And I think you see that as well with the Republican counteroffer that uh, was sent to him by the group of, of 10 senators, which comes out to $618 billion or so. That's a third the size of what he proposed, but it's still a fairly large, you know, it becomes easy to sort of dismiss hundreds of billions of dollars in the current day, but that's still that's still a lot of money. And a lot of the reporting coming out of the White House at the moment uh, is to the effect that, well, a lot of this team around in 2009, they felt that the stimulus then wasn't big enough and they should have gone bolder and should have worried less about trying to win over Republican votes. Do you think that reporting reflects reality or do you think those are the positions of a group of people making an opening offer who want to sound like they're hell-bent on getting their way, because if they're going to compromise further down the line, you know, you want to start out with a maximalist opening position. Yeah, I think it's good political strategy. There are a couple of lessons that you could take from the Obama experience. One was that Obama went too far and triggered the Tea Party, although I think it's, we can say now that it was tied in with other currents in, in American politics, like white identity and the early days of, of Trumpism. And, and the other lesson is that, that some people extract is that it didn't go far enough and that it caused a slow enough recovery that led to, you know, economic malaise that was too long lasting and therefore resulted in Democrats losing their House majority pretty resoundingly. I mean, they got they got shellacked in the midterms in 2010, right after. And Biden is very mindful of not getting shellacked, having been there in person. $1,400 checks are actually popular. Even a $15 minimum wage, which you can get a lot of opinions on, on whether or not that's a good idea, is also quite popular. It passed in Florida by about 60% in a statewide referendum, even though Trump improved his margin very recently. So there's certainly a logic to what they're, they're doing.
John Fasman, let's start with you. Help us think through how things play out from here on this first big item on Joe Biden's agenda, the COVID stimulus, which is really, in some senses, a test of what all that happy talk about unity at the inauguration really means in practice. Well, Biden proposed a $1.9 trillion stimulus package. It's pretty clear that was a maximalist opening position. And then a group of 10 Republicans who he met with Monday night made a counteroffer of $600 billion. That also is a sort of minimalist opening position. Now, the question now is, is there enough goodwill on both sides? Is there enough substantive agreement on both sides where they could meet in the middle and pass, say, a $1.2 or $1.3 trillion relief bill with 60-some votes in the Senate? I think that's clearly what the Biden administration would rather do. They would rather have a bipartisan bill that is somewhat less than what they asked for but passes with Republican support. But there are a lot of alums of the Obama administration in the current administration, and they were really burned by the Republican long negotiation over the Affordable Care Act and then not supporting it. So I think they're leery about letting negotiations drag out too long. If it looks like that's going to happen, then Biden can pass the bill through what's called reconciliation. And this is a parliamentary maneuver that lets a bill pass with a simple majority rather than a filibuster-proof 60-vote majority if it concerns federal spending and revenue. So I think that is the second choice of the Biden administration, but it is above the choice of long negotiations with little show for it. So I think fairly soon we'll see whether there's enough bipartisan support to pass a smaller bill or whether they go for the the Democrats-only reconciliation strategy. And the thing about reconciliation that's important is that you can only use it once a year. And there's other stuff that the Biden administration wants to do. So in this bill, in the stimulus that they're proposing, it really doesn't include the broad swath of stuff, even though it's a much higher dollar figure than the Recovery Act of 2009. It is a much narrower and more targeted set of proposals. So it doesn't include, for instance, huge infrastructure spending, huge climate spending, many of the other things that the Biden administration wants to achieve in terms of universal pre-K and so forth. And there is an ambition that later this year, after passing a stimulus, that the Biden team would be able to turn to a big infrastructure bill, which supposedly could be an area of bipartisan agreement. Republicans have been more open to infrastructure spending, including President Trump. And so that would be a vehicle to put, in particular, uh, some of the big climate proposals that Biden hopes to implement quite soon before he has to deal with the midterms. But if you use reconciliation on the stimulus, then you can't do it on the infrastructure bill. Just to be clear for those, I know we have some non-American listeners who may be less familiar with Senate rules. The only reason we're even talking about this is this weird rule in the Senate that you have to get 60 votes to beat a filibuster. In the House of Representatives, you can pass legislation with a simple majority, which is why Democrats don't have to worry about winning over Republicans there. John Fassman, there is a natural cutoff point in a way in March, which is when unemployment benefits run out. So those 10 moderate Republican senators who went to the White House to talk to Joe Biden, the White House, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, they can keep negotiating for for a while, for a few weeks. But there is a cutoff point to the negotiations kind of looming on the horizon. 
Yeah, there's a financial cutoff point that you mentioned. There's also, as Charlotte mentioned, a sort of political momentum cutoff point. It's easier to pass bills early on. And I think they want to do this quickly and move on to infrastructure. One thing that this whole conversation highlights, and John Prito's point is well taken, is that you know, why should people outside America in particular care about these arcane Senate rules? And the reason why is because they really do impact America's ability to pass major policy priorities for an, a, an incoming administration, even if they control the White House, the House and the Senate. It makes it very difficult for that party to do what they would hope to. I was talking to Joe Manchin this week, who's a senator from West Virginia, a moderate Democrat, who is in many ways a gatekeeper for what will and won't advance in the Senate this year and throughout Biden's term. I was speaking with him for a story on climate change, but I also asked him about the filibuster and whether Democrats should get rid of it in the aim of trying to advance their broader priorities. Over my dead body. <laughs> I think it explains your position pretty clearly, so Correct. that's appreciated. Yeah. Think about this. I want you to think about something. I sat in the seat of Robert C. Byrd. And Robert C. Byrd used to explain to me, he said, Joe, the United States Senate is the most unique body in the world. It was designed that way. He says, why do you think our founding fathers, why do you think they had two senators from each state? Why do you think Rhode Island has two senators and big old California has two senators? It wasn't by population. He says, think about that. He says, why would they have done that? Because they wanted, they wanted participation. And the big boys couldn't just overpower the little kids. That's all. He says, and then we had something we had to develop called filibuster. You know why? He said, because the minority was designed to have input into the Senate. They were designed to have input. And you had to work in a collaborative way. And he said, just think about this, Joe. They have a system uh, that they named a rule after me called the Bird Rule. Do you know why? So they couldn't go around the back door and, and mess up the filibuster. That's it, Joe. That's it. Now, do you think, now that I've told you that, you know why I said over my dead body? I'm, I'm waiting, yes. <laughs> That's why. Because he'll come out of his grave after me, and I'm not going to have that happen. <laughs> that is a very nice story, though. Of course, the founders, in their wisdom, didn't put the filibuster in the Constitution. They thought that, to Joe Manchin's point, every state having two senators was enough of a rebalancing, making sure the little guy didn't get steamrolled by the big states. But there we go. That's a detail. I think the story, though, about the little kids being able to hold their own against the big kids, it does cast it as a sort of David and Goliath thing. But it is also having a real substantive impact on the ability of America, unlike most other countries, to tackle the big problems of the day. And so, you know, I think that there is the valid point that Senator Manchin makes, as well as quite the valid counterargument that this system has made America descend into a state of gridlock and unable to challenge many of the biggest problems facing the country. Yeah, the filibuster works if you have enough people in both parties willing to work across party lines. But as soon as you don't, it basically guarantees nothing happens except once a year through reconciliation. And a quick note on reconciliation, the bird rule that Senator Manchin referred to, it only allows reconciliation in instances, just to reiterate, in instances in which it has an impact on federal outlays. So it can't be used for a variety of other types of legislation. It couldn't be used, for instance, most probably to pass a clean energy standard, which is something the Biden administration wants to do. 
Well, the other big thing that's going on in the Senate, of course, at the moment is impeachment. We haven't even mentioned that, but we will come to it in a little bit. First, though, the usual reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber already, you're missing out. Signing up is really easy, and you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. There's a great piece in the US pages comparing how Texas and California are coping with COVID. Our science pages unpick vaccine manufacturing. And the Chaguan column celebrates Chinese New Year. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. This is the point in the podcast where we like to pivot back into history a little. This week, we've enlisted the help of Josh Holmes. He has his own podcast called Ruthless, and he was chief of staff to Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, the last time the Democrats had a clean sweep, 12 years ago. Every time a party is swept out of power, there's a lot of soul searching involved and there's a huge vacuum. And the party was sort of in the wilderness. And there was a lot of talk openly about whether Republicans could recover, whether they were a regional party that could only basically exist in the Southeast of of the United States. And so there was a a real goal by leadership. And and then uh, when I was working for Senator McConnell to try to get back to basics and figure out the ties that bind most Republicans together. The fiscal conservatism, the the idea that big government doesn't have all of the answers um, and, and find these areas where you could unite as many Republicans as you can in a common argument. And Democrats, when they look back on that time now, and some of them, like Ron Klain, are now in prominent positions in the White House, look back on that as a sort of missed opportunity for them. They tried to work with the Republicans in the Senate and it didn't work out. And that experience has, to some extent, radicalized them and they seem more determined to do things through reconciliation, and, and some at least would like to get rid of the filibuster. How did it look from where you were sitting, that same experience? How do you recall it? Well, it, it, you know, it's really interesting because uh, it's hard for me to put myself in the place that Democrats were in there because Republicans have never had that. <laughs> you know? they, they had right. ex- totally complete control over the government with no levers of power for Republicans. And, and we've just never had that. And so I, I do, I'm humored by the idea that they felt like they had missed opportunities because in all honesty, they could have done whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And what happened pretty quickly is they started a, a stimulus discussion that they uh, wanted to be as large as possible. The similarities there into what we're, we're dealing with now are, are pretty obvious. Uh, but they settled on, you know, could we pick off one or two of the most moderate Republicans in order to get a patina of bipartisanship and go along our way. There was never really an engagement at the beginning. And part of that was because, frankly, President Obama wasn't a huge fan of the legislative branch. He'd spent a couple of years there, obviously, as a first-term senator, but really didn't have a lot of ambition for dealing with lawmakers on a day-to-day basis. And so they just didn't, really. And they didn't have to in the first two years, again, because Republicans didn't have any, any real power at the time. And then they decided to take the big bite, which was Obamacare. And I think every new administration has to make a calculation at some point of what is the most aggressive policy that we're going to try to get done here and use your political capital 
accordingly because you don't have a lot of it and it evaporates pretty quickly. You've got to deal with something in the first couple of years, probably year one, that makes a lasting difference. And they chose healthcare, which is a very, very difficult uh, topic. And they paid a pretty massive political price in the process. But again, there was nothing Republicans could do, right? They had the votes to pass whatever they could unify their party around. And they chose healthcare. And, and the result was they had historic losses in the next election. Uh, Republicans held the House for the remainder of the Obama term and, and, and quite frankly, uh, altered their legislative priorities for then on, then on out. As you say, there are some differences with 2009 with the situation the Republican Party find themselves in. The electoral defeats last year were nothing like as heavy as they were in 2008, but there are some similarities. If you were in the minority leader's office now, what advice would you be giving about how to pursue a legislative strategy that would encourage the recovery of the party? And also, what would you be attempting to do with these divisions that we've seen open up in the party since the election? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question because there clearly is the same sort of void in a post-Trump presidency within the Republican Party. But you know, the, the one who taught me everything I know about this is, is McConnell himself. Um, and he's sort of a master at figuring out how to deconstruct the arguments that you're all having internally and focus on the ties that bind. And what are the pieces of this party that unite everybody from Susan Collins in Maine to Ted Cruz in Texas and pick your spots accordingly. Because in all honesty, Democrats are beginning to prosecute their liberal legislative and executive agenda in a very aggressive way. And so you don't have a lot of time to sit around and navel gaze. And so you've got to focus prospectively, not retroactively. McConnell is is sort of a master at that. And I think that's basically the only way that Republicans ultimately get out of this and and compete for majorities in 2022. But Democrats are making it easier for him. I'll be honest. You know, I mean, Joe Biden ran on a very, very moderate platform where he was, in lack of a better term, a caretaker that would settle the country down and focused on tone. But then, you know, the moment he's in office, I don't know if this is Joe Biden's intent or not, but what's happened is that they've done some pretty radical things. I mean, you, you cancel the something like the Keystone Pipeline on day one with 11,000 jobs amidst the middle of a pandemic, that's a pretty ideological move. And if that continues, I think we'll be surprised at how quickly the Republican Party comes back together. Well, that was one side of what was a very tense period in Congress after the last time the Democrats won the trifecta. Charlotte, what did you make of the view that Josh Holmes laid out, his his version of history, if you like? Well, I was just struck by how much is in the eye of the beholder that when you emerge from a very tense period, the different accounts that you'll get of who was to blame for inaction or a failure to move forward on any particular issue just depends so much who you're speaking with. The Democratic account obviously is very different. What do you make of it? Yes, I'd agree with that. I'm struck by how it flat out contradicts Barack Obama's recent book, which I think all of us read, which goes into some detail on the efforts that the Obama administration went to to win over Republican senators, even though they began with a filibuster-proof majority. You know, they just thought they didn't really want to 
do things in an entirely partisan way. They were keen on bipartisanship and they found it incredibly hard. The difficulty with this system that America has in the upper house where you need, it's so hard to get 60 votes in in the Senate that you need the cooperation of the minority to run the government. And in that situation, both sides can very easily blame the other for basically saying, well, they wouldn't compromise with us because that's that's the nature of any two-sided negotiation, right? You can always blame the other person for not moving far enough in your direction. So to me, it just underlines you know, quite how hard it is to get stuff done under this system and how the incentives for the minority party usually are to not do stuff because generally voters blame the president for things not happening in in Washington. You know, they don't have a super sophisticated take on the system of checks and balances as they currently work, and the president tends to get it in the neck. That was Mitch McConnell's central insight during the Obama years, that gridlock would be blamed on Barack Obama, and therefore the incentive was not to cooperate. One thing I was struck by in that conversation is Holmes's comment that, that Republicans felt themselves in the wilderness in 2008. And I think that sentiment is a real caution to Democrats now. I think there are a lot of Democrats who feel that the Republican Party may end up, as Holmes suggested, happened in 2008, as a regional party, as a rump party. That really doesn't happen in a two-party system. I mean, I remember the first presidential race I paid attention to was the Bush-Dukakis race in 1988. I grew up in a Republican household, and the belief that Democrats were just hopelessly lost forever was sort of common currency then. Dukakis lost in a landslide after Mondale lost in a landslide. And then in 92, you got Bill Clinton. And so in a two-party system, the party that's out of power will always find a way to return to power and usually much quicker than anyone thinks it's going to be. I suppose the other thing you have to think back about the Republicans and the position they found themselves in 2009 was that at the time, the common understanding of why they had failed electorally at the end of the Bush years was that they'd pursued big government conservatism, that they hadn't followed their state-cutting instincts, that they they had been bad Reaganites and and they hadn't done what they said they were going to do, and so voters had justly punished them. And so then when, you know, for very sound economic reasons, uh, the Democratic president and House and Senate majorities pushed through a big sort of Keynesian stimulus in the teeth of the financial crisis, many of them thought, well, hang on, we're meant to be getting back to our ideology as as state shrinkers. So to expect them in that position to cooperate with uh, Barack Obama's administration in pushing through a big stimulus is kind of unrealistic. And, you know, just to the point we're making earlier shows some of the perverse incentives that are in the system. I do think that it's helpful to to go back to that period and trace the through line to where we are now, because you, I think, were covering Washington around that time. Um, when I was in the Midwest was when you were starting to get these Tea Party gatherings, and I would go to these events in Indiana and Kansas. Um, I was covering for someone for Washington for part of a summer when there were those big protests against Obamacare. I went to some town hall hearings held by some Maryland congressman about the Health Care Act. And you just at all these different gatherings got a huge, huge turnout of opponents. If there was a Democrat there, there would be a lot of strident comments directed at the Democrat. If it was just a Tea Party gathering, you'd have this real energy talking about how they wanted the government to get out of their lives, how Obamacare was overreach. It wasn't always a coherent argument. You know, you hear a lot of people say that they wanted the government out of their lives and argue things like, get your hands off my Medicare, which, of course, 
is a huge government program, but there was this huge groundswell of frustration within the conservative party that I think helped to embolden some conservatives who were trying to oppose the democratic agenda. And you saw that play out specifically with different younger members of the Republican Party, newer members of the Republican Party, who by being very obstreperous, made a name for themselves. And the the model for that is really Ted Cruz, who gave a 21-hour Senate speech to delay the federal budget and defund the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And he read Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. Um, if you haven't watched the video, don't, 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 I don't recommend it. But it made him extremely popular. He was a headache for the establishment Republicans who didn't want to have a government shutdown. But he, it made him extremely popular. The Americans for Limited Government called him the person of the year. And the formula was kind of established back then, which is act insane, get attention, have some create some troubles for the establishment, and then become a bit of a conservative hero, at least among some. And you see that now in um, Donald Trump's accolades. You know, you have Matt Getz from Florida, who's actively was campaigning against Liz Cheney as the GOP caucus chair. You had Mo Brooks in Alabama, who led the push to post certifying President Biden's victory. And then, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, who is a congresswoman who's attracted a lot of attention. Democrats are trying to remove her from her position on the Education Committee because she has spouted a variety of conspiracy theories. And in some ways, she's a headache for Republicans for herself. You know, she's raising a lot of money off of this. And so I think that you can go back to the Obama years and that kind of energy that you saw with the Tea Party that helped embolden conservatives broadly and also crafted this new model of sort of a fame-seeking Republican, I think, which is in many ways problematic for establishment Republicans like Mitch McConnell, but also helps to propel broader enthusiasm for the party. There's also, if we're going back to this period, a really interesting through line in terms of personnel. So Charlotte mentioned Ted Cruz, but it's a whole wave of congressmen who come in as part of that Tea Party movement. Uh, And some of them then end up being really leading lights in in the Trump movement, right? So you have people like Mark Meadows and Mick Mulvaney, who were heavily associated with the Tea Party, you know, shrink the government movement, who then wind up being chief of staff to a president who frankly doesn't have any interest in shrinking the government at all, but is extremely keen on owning the libs. All right, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to talk about how money has changed the incentives for members of Congress as well. One of the quirks of congressional politics is a two-year electoral cycle, which means members of the House of Representatives are in almost constant fundraising mode. Sarah Breiner of the Centre for Responsive Politics has been keeping track of how political donations are changing the way Congress works. We pay a lot of attention to the people who will donate huge amounts of money, you know, millions of dollars. But that's really just one side of the equation. On the other side, we have the political actors who are involved with members once they're elected. So, you know, you have the donation side and then you have the lobbying side. Organizations like the Chamber or National Association of Realtors or unions have massive political operations in Washington. They will be setting up meetings. They hire people who used to work on the Hill. So they have 
access through these sort of almost soft power networks to members that, you know, donors, even though they are deep pocketed, might not have. Some of the organizations you mentioned, the unions, obviously the Chamber of Commerce have been around for a long time. How generally has the money in politics picture changed since Democrats last enjoyed a trifecta 12 years ago? Two major things. One is the decision, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission, which created something called super PACs and allowed for people and corporations and other entities to donate unlimited amounts of money to political groups to spend directly on politics. Um, that has resulted in this massive level of concentration where the top 1% of donors contribute a very disproportionate amount of the overall money in the election system. So that's one big change. It's taken a lot of the power away from the political parties and a lot of the power away from the politicians and put it into the hands of these political consultants and big donors. The other major thing that happened, which is related to the Trump presidency, is that politicians, almost as a response to that, are starting to rely really heavily on donations from what we call small individual donors. So rather than relying, as they have in the past, on $5,000 contributions from political action committees or from lobbyists or from executives, politicians are really starting to rely on $25 contributions and building a grassroots network. We've seen contributions from small donors really explode over the course of the Trump presidency, both because of his fundraising, he solicits those donations, and then in response to his policies, um, he's highly alienating to a lot of people, and they move with their money to his opposition and to the Democrats, really. So those two things have almost worked in opposite directions. <laughs> but what's happened, and I think this is going to be really interesting as we go into policymaking time, is that the people who have lost power are the PACs, and those are the people who send the lobbyists to Congress. That's really interesting. So it's possible, in your view, that this Congress might be a little more immune to lobbying than the last few. Yeah, I think it is possible, especially given that a lot of PACs are throwing up their hands after the insurrection on January 6th and stepping out of politics altogether. <laughs> Whether they stay that, that course is dependent on how welcome they feel, perhaps, in some of these meetings down the road. But I do think that as we elect more politicians in the vein of Donald Trump or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Matt Gates, who really have forged new paths, that does provide them with a sense that they don't need to go to the Beltway insiders. John, when I first started getting interested in American politics, which was quite a while ago now, I feel like the received wisdom was that what was wrong with American politics was lobbyists and the campaign donations that lobbyists made. And there was also a view that there was something a bit sinister about the control that party leaders exercised over their members, you know, the way they were able to control who got on committees and that that was rather stifling. That's less the case now representatives, as we've heard in that interview, have other options 
to get their message out, whether that's on cable news or on social media. And they have other options for fundraising, so they don't have to rely on the party machinery so much. And yet the result doesn't seem better to me, at least. It doesn't seem better to me either. I think that the the sort of received wisdom, especially on the left, regarding the extent to which big corporate donations could compel a politician to behave in a way that he or she would not otherwise behave is sort of a red herring, which is not to say that, you know, the political world wouldn't be better with publicly funded campaigns. Maybe it would. But the idea that people would turn into someone they're not through donations, I think, was never quite true. I think that right now what we see is with the rise of small dollar donors is another sort of incentive, which is that it incentivizes politicians to be strident. The member of Congress who is the best at this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 80% of her donations came from small dollar donors. Now, I wonder how many of those are from her district. She has become a very national figure, but she's great at raising money. But the small dollar donations, they're like Twitter likes. The way to get them is to be as strident as possible. And that presents its own set of problems. I think in the broader conversation about the importance or not of lobbyists and big money, I take the point that small dollar donations have increased dramatically and that the that is having a very big impact in the here and now of American politics. I do think that it's worth remembering just how effective some lobbyists have been historically and how their work sticks with the American public in ways that are hard to appreciate on the surface. So it was 20 years or so ago that there was a lobbying group that put out a memo that was widely circulated among Republicans for how to respond to questions about climate change. It included the argument that the science on climate is unclear, that even if temperatures are rising, that America is not the sole culprit. And if America acted aggressively, it would put itself at a disadvantage relative to other countries in the world. And that if there is any action that is required, it's going to be solved not through regulation or restrictions, but rather through innovation. And that is the script that conservatives have more or less stuck to for 20 years. I mean, it's it's been pretty remarkable how effective that guidance has been. And so I bring that up just as an anecdote that, yes, I do think in some ways that the power of big donors is subsiding or at least taking on a different tenor in American political life, but that um, the work of different groups remains part of discourse for a very long time. That was Frank Luntz's work, that memo, wasn't it? It was, and he's since denounced it. Or, or expressed regret about it, but the work was done. I do think this fundraising and money in politics question is really hard to get right, because there is a lot to like as well about the small dollar donations compared with the opposite. I mean, I remember doing reporting in Washington during Barack Obama's second term, uh, at the point when Republicans were campaigning really hard to win back the Senate. And I remember talking to some Republican House staffers them telling me just how brutal the fundraising was for members who were in competitive districts. I remember the story of one Republican representative in particular who just used to spend, you know, all day uh, dialing for dollars with short breaks of kind of 30 seconds between calls to donors. And he would do push-ups in those intervals in order to keep himself pumped for the next one. Uh, You know, he spent minimal time in his office in Congress 
thinking about legislation or policy. Almost all of his time was spent in effectively a call centre just outside Congress because the rules say that you can't dial for donations, request donations from your office in Congress. So representatives have these kind of call centres placed just outside. And he'd be there with his headset on just calling donors, you know, pretty much eight hours a day. It was incredibly depressing. And the small dollar fundraising where representatives are able to get money in by sending emails out to people uh, and by building their own sort of brands, in some ways, I guess, is preferable to that. Um, John Prito, you didn't say what member of Congress that was, but it probably could be literally any of them. And I'm sure that people are, even as we speak now, dialing for dollars, even as they're thinking about uh, what comes next week, which is impeachment. Do either of you have predictions for what we'll see in the Senate? I mean, it's looking less and less likely that you'll get enough Republicans to convict. I mean, really, I would be shocked if that happened. What do you think? You get a couple of Republicans voting for impeachment this time around. I would say five at the max. What about you, Charlotte? That sounds about right. Which is a big change, I think, from where we were immediately after uh, the insurrection in the Capitol, where it really felt like there was this opportunity for the Republican Party to turn its back pretty decisively on Donald Trump. Um, that was a, a real opening for the party. And I think collectively, they decided not to take it. I think six is possible. Romney, Collins, Murkowski, Toomey, Portman, and maybe uh, maybe Ben Sass. But I don't see more than that. And I certainly don't see 17. That was six people you listed? That was six. That's good live on-air fact-checking from Charlotte. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think that the outcome of the impeachment is probably somewhat predetermined, but you know, I'm sure that members of the Senate are looking forward to raising massive amounts of money uh, as the impeachment proceedings continue. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Those of us who write about American politics are about to get our inboxes absolutely flooded with uh, fundraising emails on, on impeachment. Before I let you both go, it's quiz time. The first time The Economist reported on the US Senate was in May 1844. The annexation of Texas was on the agenda then. The paper urged senators to block the addition of Texas to the Union, with apologies to Elliot Morris. It would extend the mischiefs of slavery and spark a disastrous revolution, we thought. Texans themselves were pushing for annexation. Who was president of Texas at the time? I mean, absolutely no clue. I will... I will be very impressed if you know this, John Fasman. Even more impressed than usual. I don't know. Who's a famous Texan? Sam Houston? It was Sam Houston. You're kidding me. It was Sam Houston. That was so good. I mean, I, I really am in awe. <laughs> Houston was actually raised in Tennessee. Aged 16, he ran away to live with the Cherokee. Historians credit his later success as a commander in the war with Mexico to the years he spent hunting with them. The Cherokee rather than the historians, that is. What nickname, more commonly associated with the guardians of a London landmark, did the Cherokee give him? Beefeater. Oh my goodness, really? Charlotte, do you want to venture something? No, I'm thinking that this all reminds me of the novel The Sun, which I can highly recommend. Has anyone read it? No, why, why can you recommend it so? Mm. Tell us about it. Well, it's it. about this period of Texas history. It's kind of a multi-generational thing, but it includes... The um, the father figure is someone who runs off, who's a Texan and runs off and lives with a local tribe for a while. Anyway, it's very good. But I have absolutely no answer to what his nickname would have been given by the Cherokees. 
Will you get a point for such an erudite literary reference? The answer was they called him Raven. After a brief career in Nashville politics, Houston rejoined the Cherokee when his first wife left him. He remarried with the Cherokee and became their envoy to the US government, often wearing traditional dress, before he wound up in Texas and earned his place in history. Is that why Houston is Houston? Yeah, absolutely. It certainly is. John, I feel like that quiz was tilted in your favour, given you're such a Houston aficionado. I am always happy to talk about Houston, the city itself or its namesake, about whom I now actually know something. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. If you fancy digging a bit deeper into the history and possible future of the Republican Party, The Economist Asks podcast this week features the historian Heather Cox Richardson. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hold up. 